0: Just before we start today's show, uh, Mid-Atlantic listeners, I'd like to implore you to go over to our new YouTube channel. Yes, you've heard it. We finally are putting our shows up on YouTube. Quite simply, go to YouTube, search for Mid-Atlantic Podcast to subscribe to our channel. It's incredibly important that you do so for the sake of the algorithm. Some jiggery poke which I don't quite understand, but you can watch all the episodes there and Please, for the love of all things holy, please subscribe to the channel because it really will help me out. Now, plus, for an exclusive experience, visit Royfield.com and sign up to our newsletter. Now, this will give you access to the live podcast recordings on Zoom, where, if you are in the audience, you can engage and ask questions with our expert guests. So join us on this journey of exploration and understanding of the world of politics in the US, in the UK and globally. Subscribe and sign up today. This podcast
1: is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
0: All right.
2: Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem.
3: The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America.
0: Hi, hello, welcome. This is an episode of Mid-Atlantic, the podcast where we dissect the pulsating heart of American politics and British and, and we look at its ripple effects across the Atlantic. I'm your host, Royfield Brown, who's today in sunny. That's not true. It's absolutely freezing. It is brass monkeys, which is an expression. Corey, do you want to translate the expression brass monkeys for our American I'm sorry, but I can't. That, that sounds like something
2: exclusive to the Midlands. Brass monkeys. I'm presuming it means very cold. Up north, we'd
0: say it's biting. It's biting. But I've never heard brass monkeys. I had no idea that Brass Monkey is just a brummy thing. If you are not from the Midlands and you're not Brass Monkey's me, send me an email because I don't think that is just a brummy thing. But anyway, what we're going to do today is we're going to dive into the aftermath of the Iowa Caucasus. And it's a critical cool test in the 2024 election cycle. Joining me to unravel the results are our esteemed guest, political strategist, Michael Donahue, commentator Corey Bernard. Analyst uh, Z Cohen Sanchez and poll expert Logan Phillips. Uh, we set to explore the landscape that has been shaken by Donald Trump's overwhelming victory, in which he secured a record fifty-one percent of the vote. And but there is a tight race emerging for second place. As we delve into these results, we'll examine the strategic shifts and the challenges within the Republican field.
4: Iowa Republican voters have made their choice clear for the presidential nominee. They voted resoundingly in favor of Donald Trump at last night's caucuses, launching the former president's march to a rematch with Joe Biden in November. Trump's win left his competitors lagging far behind in the first state-by-state contest where Republican voters select their candidate. Trump thanked his supporters for turning out despite the frigid temperatures and blizzard conditions.
5: So we're going to put America first. We're going to make America great again. Again, Iowa, we love you. This is the first because
3: the big night is going to be in November when we take back our country.
4: Trump received 51 percent of the vote share in his historic victory. He lost the Iowa caucuses back in 2016. But momentum for his comeback campaign has surged this year even though he faces a litany of legal troubles, including more than 90 felony charges across four states.
0: I suppose, if it's um, election results, uh, we need to start with you, Logan. Trump's overwhelming victory at 51% of the vote. Does this underscore his enduring popularity amongst Republican voters? And what does it say about the also-rans, second and third,
5: Haley and DeSantos? 51% 51% going in is a strong number in part because everyone else is so low. And in a different version of this primary, if Ron DeSantis' um, wings were never clipped and he pulled as strong as he did in earlier parts of the primary, that could have been a major sign that he was in danger. And I think what we have seen is that there's a significant number of Republicans aren't fully on board, especially in the early states where they're looking a little more closely at the primary. But the Republicans who want something else, they don't have enough in common to select to collectively choose one. And we have head-to-head polling whenever it's Trump versus DeSantis or Trump versus Haley. There's just not enough crossover for any of these guys to be able to come close to beating him. They're usually down 40 points even when it's 1v1 at least. So Donald Trump is in a strong position and really we're looking at New Hampshire to see if that changes the dynamic in the race. And sometimes it does when a candidate overperforms in one of those two states. John McCain, John Kerry both gained 40 points in the aftermath of strong performances in the first two states. But it's hard to see it happening this time around. And I think if you were rooting for Trump, you'd be happy if you're rooting against him. This was the worst case scenario and that DeSantis doesn't really have anywhere to go after this because he's weak in the early states more than he is in pretty much any other state, just his worst performances. Nikki Haley, very strong in New Hampshire, strong in South Carolina as well. But she ended up finishing third here, so she doesn't have the momentum. And DeSantis, who's down to 5 or 6% in New Hampshire, he's probably going to get a boost and. That's going to make it a lot harder for Nikki Haley to have a potential close finish or even victory, which that's the one state she has a shot at winning it outright because she's within single digits of Donald Trump in the polls there.
0: Z, let's try and triangulate this. There was a tight race for second place and discover those results again. DeSantos finished with 21.2% and Haley Garnered 19.1% with a strong finish. What does this mean in terms of the anti- trump vote. Is this everybody that didn't vote for Trump fundamentally is anti-Trump? Because Ramaswamy, he got 9% and he was very much Trump-like. DeSantos is another flavor of Trump. I don't know. Please analyze the different coalitions and the factions and the strength of the anti-Trump Republican vote in Iowa.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with Logan 100% and that. This has been a, a question on everybody's mind for the last four years, essentially, right? Of like, how much does Trump have to fuck up? I don't know if I can say that on podcast, but <laughs> um, how much does he have to screw up, essentially, for people to stop supporting him? And I think that there were sort of two minds of this, right? There was he all 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 that has to happen is that but he has to get arrested, and then people are going to stop supporting him. Or but he has to be convicted in this Georgia case, and people will stop supporting him. Whatever, right? Which just has not been the case. It seems to be that actually his Trump his support has really increased since these things have happened. And I think if, we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast in the past about why that why that case is. And I I truly believe that people are not supporting Trump because of the facts. They're supporting him because they think he's an outsider who is who these Republicans have a a witch hunt for him, basically. And the more that they can prove that in their minds by, oh, this case wouldn't be happening if it was somebody else or whatever, then the more they end up supporting him, which is clearly the case, right? Iowa should not be a place where people um, support Trump, right? It's very, Iowa has not had that type of history, at least from my understanding in the past. So I know that we would probably assumed to see that in places in the deeper South and places like that. But Iowa, the, the fact that Trump won by as much as he did just shows that really there's no real primary left. So yeah, I think that that moving forward, honestly, I don't think that there is really much of a primary left. I think that the real question is going to be now is who's going to be Trump's VP.
0: Before we come on to that question, however, though, Z, I don't often agree with Nikki Haley on Anything, but I'd agree with one thing that her framing in that Trump and Biden both represent a gerontocracy. She's starting to target Trump for his age is 77, which kind of marks a shift of her focus and her attacks basically on to Donald Trump. I still want to get to the bottom of this, Logan. Is can we discern a upper limit on the Lincoln Project, anti-Trump, Chris Christie et al. wing of
5: Republican voters in the primary. You can cap it quite well. low. That's not a high percentage of the party. There were a lot more Republicans who maybe felt like that who are no longer Republicans. A lot of them are independents and Democrats now. Feel
0: free to talk some more because I haven't looked at the next question yet, so I need you to fill time.
5: Yeah, that is, we have a huge fundamental shift in our politics since 2012. You have, in particular, a lot of white voters that don't have a college degree that had been moving away from Democrats, but just accelerated a lot towards Trump, helped him win 2016. And then you saw the reverse. There was a trend also happening in 16 of white college-educated voters leaving the Republican Party and moving towards Dems. And the coalition that Mitt Romney wrote to win the nomination, there's just a big slice of it missing, right? So some of those voters want different things, and some of it's just they're different voters now. And so that makes it hard for Haley to win. I don't think Haley's running on an anti-Trump campaign. She's hitting him on his age. It's not exactly the hard-hitting spot. And she hasn't done him much at all this primary. She's really, in my view, been running for second place. And that is maybe to help herself run in 2028 and start as one of the front runners. And she's in a better position for that. But it's part of the reason why Christie didn't endorse her. We heard from the hot mic when he was dropping out is I think he viewed Haley as just an opportunist. His words. But he, he was running to help her own brand versus actually trying to win. Now, it's not necessarily clear if there was a pathway this primary. I think maybe you could argue if there wasn't an indictment, because in the head-to-head polling versus Ron DeSantis, every indictment, Ron DeSantis lost five points on Donald Trump. I I was looking at this, like, within the two weeks afterwards, so I think there was a point when DeSantis was was outright beating Trump, he's lost, like, 44% in that head-to-head polling in terms of the lead flipping, and over about half of that came within two weeks after each of the four indictments each time, so that combined with the fact that the one guy who might have been able to win him beat Trump, right? The guy who dominated the, what I like to call the shadowboxing part of the primary where no one's officially running, but they're absolutely running behind the scenes. Republicans had the combination of having the guy who was doing a great job there to actually take the lead against Trump in the head-to-head, but having a total inability to run as a candidate once we got to the actual active primary because it just didn't live up to the image behind the TV for voters. They didn't like what they see when they got to know him better. That plus the indictment has made this primary a bit of a joke at this point. And while Haley would probably do a lot better in the general election, she's just not what GOP voters are looking for right now.
0: So I've got a whole load of questions here about Trump's legal challenges amidst the campaign, Haley's prospects and challenges. And, and I'll, I'll get on to asking some of those questions in, in a minute. But see, a, a question. Let's say that Trump loses... The next election what Republican party do we have that runs in 2028 is it a MAGA party or will the Republicans maybe re- revert back to type or is it some weird hybrid of the two I'm really fascinated and I hadn't thought about this until Logan said that Hades running to be second to run in 2028 and I think she's a really interesting character because Number one, yes, she's a woman. She's a woman of colour. So certain optics are filled there. However, she was pretty much MAGA-esque before MAGA, before she became the governor of South Carolina. And she's somewhat now less populist. And she feels almost like an establishment Republican figure. So... does that point us to the future of a Republican Party post-Trump? If Trump wins, that's another Republican Party. If the Republicans lose, what Republican Party are we going to have in 2028 that's going to be running for the presidency?
1: I think it's really hard to tell in 2028. I think some of the things that we can think about, though, is what they're, and as the primary goes on, and I, I do hope that we have a primary, I hope that I'm wrong, and that we continue to see these stats coming out of specific states, because I think that's very helpful for us to know uh, where we have to do the work and to which demographics we have to do the work in and et cetera. But what is interesting is that right now, the MAGA candidates overall are not doing very well, right? Uh, they are not nowhere near as strong as what they were back when Trump was originally running in 2016. A lot of those candidates are losing their elections locally. and But also, we're talking about a new age of of kids that are going to be voting in 2028. I do think it's going to be interesting. When we saw the stats coming out of Iowa, obviously the biggest population to support Trump was the boomers. The younger voters were voting for Haley, Romaswamy, people like that. It was actually quite a small percentage, and I can pull it up here in a second to get that exact percentage, but it was significantly lower. There were young people that voted for Trump, but as I said, significantly lower from what the boomers... And Gen X were in voting for Trump. So I do think as we see that shift, 2028 is we still have four years from now. So we're talking about those Gen Zers are going to be essentially moving up. We're going to have the new generation coming in, and that could really change things. What I think is also going to be interesting to see is do we have, are we going to have this new hybrid candidate coming out, this Haley type of candidate who, is establishment in a way, but also claims to be like a Trump outsider. That could be, right? I, I don't know. But I, I think it will be interesting to see as we get through some of these states what the age demographics are and what the race demographics are in terms of who's voting for Trump.
0: Logan, the amount of voters who turned up and who braved the chilly Iowa winter was, was was pretty low. Was that all just down to the weather, or is there some level of Republican apathy regarding the candidates
5: that they had to uh, caucus for? I think there's some apathy to a degree. I think ter- enthusiasm is down in both parties, it's not just the Democrats. People are still supporting Trump pretty clearly right now, especially outside the early states. Where I don't think they're paying much attention to this primary at all, to be honest. But they're not doing with necessarily the same zeal or energy. You hear it all the time from Trump supporters that they're like a little less excited about this time. Trump is, in my opinion, getting a little bit older, too. We're seeing it from both candidates. He, When you watch his rallies, there isn't as much fire or enthusiasm from the crowd. People attending the rallies is a little lower, too. So that doesn't mean he's not a candidate that has a real chance to win in the general election. He absolutely can. Today, he's leading in the polling. But I think that you're probably going to see a drop in turnout from both parties in 2020. Now, it'll still probably be a really high turnout because... We had the highest turnout in American history, or at least since 1900, depending on how you look at it last time around. Back then, black voters and couldn't vote in the South, and women voters couldn't vote anywhere. So I would say it was the largest in history in 2020. Once someone votes once, they're a lot more likely to vote a second time. So even if less enthusiasm, the turnout will probably be higher than most recent elections.
0: See, why is Ron DeSantis still in the race? And let's say that I'm saying this the morning after New Hampshire, when he only gets 7% of the vote.
1: I don't know why he was ever in the race to begin with. I'm going to be totally honest with you. But I do think that he is in the race for different reasons than Haley is. I, I do agree. I think Haley is doing this for a 2028 run, which I actually I think is pretty smart of her because I think the age demographics will change now. That low support, I, we have to see what happens in New Hampshire with her. If she sucks in New Hampshire, it's she can kiss 2028 20, 20 goodbye, I think, because she just doesn't have the support that she needs. DeSantis, I think, was running for a different reason. I think DeSantis is doing this because I think that there is a possibility that Trump doesn't survive, right? Like, he's old. He's under enormous amounts of stress. Um, He doesn't take care of himself. Like, he's not going to last a whole lot longer. And are the chances of him dying between now and the election, are they high? Mm, probably not. But there's still I, I think that there's still a, a chance that that could happen. And I think that's probably what DeSantis is staying in the race for and knowing that everybody else is dropping out. I think something else that's really interesting, too, is what it's going to be like moving forward for these candidates, because I, I don't know if you guys saw but Ramaswamy added one hundred million dollars to his portfolio during this failed run for president, which I found was fascinating and makes me think. Was this the reason why he decided to run all along to make himself personally rich, which we're starting to see actually on both sides of the table, both for Dems and Republicans? That's going to skew, I think, the way that we see these candidates enter the race in the future, because a lot of them aren't going to be running just because they want to be president. They're going to be running to build their portfolios. What?
0: So I can get out of my credit card debt if I run to be president of the United States?
1: Apparently, if you're Ravama Swamy, you can't. <laughs> wow. Okay.
5: Yeah. See, I would just add on that real quick. I think that we were... It's hard to remember because it's just so long ago, but in the immediate aftermath of the 2022 election, Donald Trump was in a bad place in the polling. His support had fallen as low as 40 in the latter part of December, up from 55% and up from 85% when you're talking about the polling or 90% when you're talking about the polling in 2020. So... I think these guys were running because they thought they could win some of them, at least, especially DeSantis, because he was at 33% when he launched his campaign, only seven points behind. But everything went badly for DeSantis afterwards, and everything went well for Trump. If you look at the field, they attracted some pretty serious recruits, considering who they were up against. You had a senator in Ted Cruz, who's pretty popular. You had Nikki Haley. You had Vice President Mike Pence. Voters were in a position where they liked Donald Trump a lot, but they weren't necessarily sure he was the guy, their guy going forward. They've ultimately decided he is their guy, it looks like, unless New Hampshire spurs a sea change in the primary.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating, too, because if you look at, I was just reading an article just this morning about Trump doubled his numbers in Iowa, which is, uh, I don't know how they did that. But from what I've been seeing is that he has a very robust volunteer program and very robust voter outreach program. And I think that ultimately that's really worked for him. And we could see that ultimately in the numbers. But yeah, I think moving forward, I think we're really going to see by New Hampshire, I think we're going to have a pretty, pretty solid path forward in terms of who's going to stay in and who's jumping out.
5: Yeah. Yeah, it is funny. It shows how much Trump's coalition has shifted because evangelicals used to be his biggest weakness and now they're his biggest strong suit. Iowa is the state where if you do well for evangelicals, you're in a good position. Ted Cruz, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum all won it through that strength. And last time around, he won New Hampshire. That's what saved him and kept him in the race. And that's now the only state he looks like he's in real danger of potentially losing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I would love to, I mean, you know, Trump is one of the best campaigners. That is something I'll commend him on. He has a very strong campaigning team.
0: He he does indeed. Uh, And on that note, it was lovely listening to the pair of you go backwards and forwards. Uh, More of that, please. Now, Michael and Corey, right? You've seen the bar has been set very high with the level of analysis that we had from American uh, political pundits. So, do Britain proud, sir. And, Mike, you are an honorary Brit in this regard.
1: Straight to the House of Commons to listen to the like vote. 320,
2: the nose to the left, 276.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The eyes to the right,
0: 320. The nose to the left, 276. The eyes have it, the eyes have it. Look! Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, there you go. The Rwanda Bill has officially passed through the third reading the of the House of now, Commons now. with a majority of 44. So, relatively comfortable after the big rebellion that we saw when it comes uh, with the uh, amendments nice. that we saw yesterday. And that, of course, is a big moment. And Rishi Sunak and Number 10 will be breathing a big sigh of uh, sigh of relief. That does not mean, of course, that the battle is over. It's going to go into the House of Lords, where I'm sure. Some peers will have a thing or two uh, to I'm say to uh, about this legislation. Boston well, let's pick Russian up with our political editor, Beth Rigby, who's still in central lobby. A majority of West four to four, Beth.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is a comfortable majority. The prime minister, I think, will be delighted. The Rwanda bill, uh, this controversial piece of legislation championed by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, has recently cleared its final hurdle in the House of Commons, but not without its share of drama and dissent. The bill, which aims to declare Rwanda a safe country for deporting asylum seekers, has sparked a fury of reactions from cautious support to outright rebellion within the Conservative Party and has raised significant questions about the UK's approach to immigration and international law. Despite passing in the Commons with a majority of 44 votes, the bill has been met with a limited Tory rebellion and scepticism from notable figures, from the former home secretary Suella braverman and others the now the house of lords now poses a new battlefield where where should we start corey i always think that british politics is just it's just on speed now it's on cocaine speed and anything else which is incredibly fast one day is is a week in british politics there are factions there are Threatened rebellions, new bills, all sorts, and before, and it's only twelve o'clock. How in peril was the prime minister at the start of the week that the Tory rebellion was going to un- unseat? Mixing my metaphors here, was going to scupper. That's a better one. His Rwanda bill. I don't think that
2: much. I think it was. I think it was overhyped. And I said it because there's there, there's always this talk of. Let's put the, let's talk about the rebellion, sorry, the amendments, and then I guess the third reading yesterday. So in terms of the amendments, and the amendments being voted up, or voted for, is up the right word? Anyway, voted for. There was never any chance of those amendments to heighten in this Rwanda Bill even further going through at all, because the opposition would never vote for it. All of the One Nation Tories wouldn't vote for it. And half of the crazies on the right wouldn't vote for it either, because whilst they might be crazy, I don't think they're stupid, the other half are crazy and stupid and they were the 66 who voted for the amendment there was no chance that the amendments the amendment, there were many amendments but that amendment that made news to disapply international law there was no chance that was ever going to have a majority in House of Commons and then when it comes to the third reading obviously that was always going to be closer because the opposition parties were always going to vote against the bill when it was the, the, the reconstituted bill so there was always a risk there but again I don't think there are enough stupid and sorry, there aren't enough crazy and stupid gory MPs to have uh to have joined with the opposition, or even to have abstained. So yes, the majority, as you said, was only I think forty-four. I don't think there was much chance of that ever being voted down. But as you implied, if it was voted down, a government doesn't read lose third readings of a bill, and if they do lose it, then government's going to fall. So yeah, I don't think there was much of that. I think part of the issue is is that you? the cranks are very loud. I don't think they are, as I said, there are cranks and there are stupid cranks. The stupid crank, the cranks are loud, the stupid cranks are even louder,
0: but there's just not enough of them, in my opinion. Mike, is there another set of adjectives to describe them other than just stupid cranks? So there were 11 Conservative MPs who voted against the bill. Notable figures such as former Home Secretary Suala Braverman, and former immigration uh, minister Robert Jenrick, and uh, th- there were also eighteen Conservative MPs who abstained from voting. So uh, they're crazy and stupid, according to Corey. What else binds them together?
3: Royalty. I think we, when I first, when this sort of bill was first proposed, and there was a number of, I think Robert Jenrick was really the first one to really viciously oppose it. And it was like, okay, good. There's some people in the conservative party who do have a sense of... And then you find out that he wasn't objecting. And and the abstainers, nor these abstainers, or the no no votes, they're not objecting to the improper treatment of immigrants. They feel like the bill didn't go far enough, that the bill still had an appeals process worked into it, that they wanted to exclude. Crazy stupid, cruel. And I understand politically why Richie's doing it. But to me, I think he's preaching to the choir of his base. And he's certainly not pulling more moderates in his direction. And I think the polls, both both his personal poll, the overall voting intention poll, and I think you have just had another youth intention poll where the conservatives only had 10% and Labour had 50 Conservatives were basically tied with uh, the Greens at 10% of voting intention among the youth, So I don't know. It's a rough all the way around.
0: Corey, Dining Street has hailed the passing of the bill as a major step in their plan to curb illegal immigration. And they've also emphasized the reduction in boat crossings and the importance of the legislation in deterring perilous journeys across the channel. So there are some victories to be had here, however small they might seem, Downing Street has got the third reading of this bill and boat crossings are down. whoop you do for Rishi and the Tories. whoop do doo boat crossings are down. So in 2022, boat crossings were
2: 46,000. So 46,000 people came across in 2022 on the boats across the channel. Last year, 2023, it was down 36% to 29,000. So, you're going from 46,000 to under 30,000 in one year. But you really wouldn't really know that unless you go looking for it, unless you're really in tune with the news. And the people who are going to swing the election for them are not necessarily in tune with the news every minute of the day. I think it highlights that Reach is terrible at politics because you're right. There is a win, there is a whoop de doo. But they've really not really they've, they've not shouting about this. If this was me, i will be shouting from the rooftops. I've got boat crossings down, made a massive issue of it last year. His predecessors, Boris Johnson, Pretty Patel, they made a massive deal of it in 2022. They've dropped it by 36%. That's a lot in one year. But you wouldn't know it unless you actually go looking for it or you, you closely follow these things. Yes, what we do. But again, it just highlights how bad Rishi that and his team around him are just basic politics. And they've not been shouting this from the rooftops. They've, not, you, they've made such a big deal of the problem, but... They're not making a big deal of of them solving it. Whether they've actually solved it or not doesn't really matter, does it, politics? You take credit for what happens,
0: regardless of whether you've actually done it or not. But they've been silent. It's just mystifying to me. Mike, despite the Bill's passage in the Commons sooner faces challenges in the Lords where extensive debates and amendments are expected, the government is preparing to instruct MPs to reject any amendments from the Lords but this will most probably lead to a prolonged process of legislative ping-pong between the two houses. The Lords aren't going to like this, are they? At all. I'll be going to see the next, what, I don't know, six months or so, with, with this being the legislative booby trap. That's, it's not a booby trap. The legislative hot potato, that's the word I'll search for, hot and potato, Going between the two houses, and Nedby.
3: this bill won't even see passage before the next election. Yeah, no, I, d- I don't. I guess I don't see it that way. Um, the House of Lords, first of all, the dilution of the House of Lords is uh, ridiculous. And haven't they just added another forty or fifty by the by the honours listings of Johnson, Tress, and God knows how many others but no i I guess I don't see it that way I, I I think again the the general perception is that the House of Lords is a little bit more than a rubber stamp but not much more and if the public if there's perception that they're truly interfering with what the Commons are doing i I don't think that would really sit well for any sort of extended period of time I think we saw that a little bit even with brexit where it was there was some back and forth and it I don't think that reaction uh was positive for the Lords so i I Again, my own opinion, uh, I I don't think it'll last uh, very long if it does become that.
0: Let's move to the one thing which is really just, I cannot remember a period of British politics where there's been this level of rancor, not within a political party, because you can look at the 1980s and with the militant tendency in Labour, but I think that was maybe what, four years, five years? Whereas it, it's fine for a, a party in opposition to be at war with itself. You sort out your policies, you sort out the, the the core aims of the party in opposition. What is weird, odd and bizarre is that we've had since at least 2016, the governing party, which is fundamentally at war with itself, the the effective opposition. To the prime minister has been the backbenches and of his or her own party. How many different houses or mafia named colleagues are there within the Conservative Party now? Isn't it about time they just gave up the ghost and divided into two: the crazies on one side and the less so crazy on the other? Yeah, in theory, that would make sense, but it's it's never going to happen because
2: then they just die. Yeah, you know, that th- that will be the death of the, of the conservative party because the way British politics is made up. You can't have three equal part, equal sized or equal influence parties in Britain. You're going to have two. So if you split, you die. Your faction, whichever faction you split into, is not going to suddenly become the, the either the opposition, the main opposition, or the candidate for government. It's not going to happen. But I, I think it speaks to Lack of leadership, but you've got, as you said, you as you implied, you have got the five families, so called, and now this apparent sixth family. And maybe they'll call themselves the Chicago outfit. They're trying to really follow the mafia if talk line for line. It's ridiculous, and but it just screams people who are politically bored. They're just bored. They're bored, and they've got no ambition for victory. Because if they were in serious about winning, they would know that this continual uh, splintering is not going to do them any favors. Obviously. They're doing it because they think that, I guess, ostensibly they'd be like, "Oh, we're we're doing it to save the party."
0: You know what? Yeah, sorry. I'm Sorry. Say, au contraire. No, no. I I jumped in because if I didn't jump in, I was going to forget the point. Continued splintering and a continued hardening of your view led to Brexit and a hard Brexit. So there is precedent for hammering home. Your extreme view and and if we just take how the needle moved with brexit when that brexit vote happened, most brexiteers said it was going to be a soft brexit. We're not talking about leaving the single market, but by the time that victory then came, and then subsequently eighteen months later they're all arguing for the hardest of hard brexits i normal political wisdom, be damned. They have the evidence of the last, what, eight years to say, no, double down, be as hard, be as reactionary, be as right-wing as possible, and actually you can affect change. It got them Johnson. It actually got them Truss. She did last, but it's proven to be a successful strategy. You're right in the sense
2: of doubling down on hardening your stance work when it came to pushing through harder Brexit or when it came through to uh, getting a majority in 2019. But I think there are key differences with what's going on now with this and with Brexit. I'd say in three main differences. first difference is the issue. It was such a monumental issue. The issue of Brexit is in a different order. Is It's a different order than small ball crossings and a bill about Rwanda. It's a different order than what else are they banging on about waiting lists which are is an important thing but these are generational this is it's a issue, generational issue in in a way that those things aren't now which they're going on about now secondly the hardening of the Tory right when it comes to brexit was something that was decades old these so splintering into five groups in the past year can't be compared with Splintering over brexit which was a, something that grew which was festered and grew and, and nurtured over the course of 30 years but I think there are two big differences so i agree with you the principle of and maybe they're thinking that maybe they are thinking like you're saying that oh we hardened on this so if we hardened on our issues now we'll get victory because we we got victory on brexit but brexit and the issues or the non-issues that they're fighting over now different order of magnitude different time scale in terms of how those sort of differences fed themselves and nurtured themselves. John Major in the 90s had problems with them. Thatcher had problems with them in the 80s. Going back to the 70s, when we first went into the EU, that's just a 40, 50-year issue. Lee Anderson and Swala Braverman and whatever pet issue they have of the day are six months old. So I just think it's, to- I think it's totally different order of magnitude, totally different timescale in terms of how these things have developed. And so they, they, they can't rely on the same effect. Because it's not the same title, probably.
0: Mm. What's Mike Rishi suit? Start again. Mike Keir Starmer, is his performance in quest Prime Minister's question time effective? Does he even have to lay a glove on the Prime Minister regarding the shambolic passage of this bill?
3: Well, So take the percentage of the population in the UK who really actively keeps touch on political events and then determine the percentage of those people who actually watch PMQs and then take the percentage of those people who actually care about what happens in PMQs. I think, unfortunately, and I think I I feel like it really started with Johnson, It, it has become a little bit more of kabuki theater. You're not really seeing, you're seeing substantive, questions asked, but you just get, we saw with Johnson and we were seeing out with Rishi, that regardless of what the question is, they just start talking about other accomplishments that have nothing to do with answering the question. And I I actually think, especially the PMQs for last week, where apparently there's 4,000 migrants that are missing. Stommer I think, asked three or four times, he's three or four of his questions as to where are these people and Rishi had each time just started talking about we've done this and we've done that and it was infuriating when Johnson did it and it's starting to become infuriating now and again my understanding is the Speaker of the House is Lindsay Hoyle is not supposed to allow non-answers and but it's not happening so unless some sort of enforcement is made to actually get them back into a proper Q&A interaction it's Kabuki theater. It's just a uh, ten minutes to let each side talk about what they like about themselves and what they don't like about the other party.
0: Corey compliance with international law. This bill doesn't, and that has led to internal divisions, which the right wing of the Conservative Party say to hell with international law. We we, we are sovereign. But the Rwanda plan has intensified to of an arms race amongst Tory backbenchers, particularly those facing strong election challenges from party like Reform UK. This dynamic is pushing the party further towards authoritarianism and a populist stance on migration. It sounds rather like American politics, doesn't it? Oh,
3: okay.
0: The reason I'm hesitating is because I always, maybe
2: it's just my political bias, I always shiver. Comparisons between conservatives and GOP Because I just think uh, GOP is absolutely batshit crazy And I guess I don't want to be associated with batshit craziness Anyway, that aside Yes, you do have a sort of point-ish kind of, Even though I'm loath to
0: agree Sir, I have a very strong and valid point It's like holding up a mirror right here <laughs> and now I wouldn't go that far I wouldn't go that far Simply because I think the.
2: I just think there's more this is going to sound really bad, and, and and no offense to my American friends, I just don't think the concern. I don't think we're that. I don't think we've got to that level of crazy over here. I know I I, I used the word crazy quite a bit earlier in relation to that half of the conservative party, but I, I really just don't think we that with that Corey. at that
0: point yet. Corey, um, pretty Patel, Suella Braverman, Liz Truss, and that's just off the top. All right. That's just off the top of my head. Alright. I'll tell you what. I'll
2: tell, uh, something, okay, something beyond my own feelings. Something a bit more objective. Right. So this, this Rwanda bill. You've got 380, what is it? 390? You've got about 400 Tory MPs in House of Commons, right? Uh, 66 of them voted for that, for those crazy amendments. I keep saying crazy, I need to find a new word. And those amendments to disapply international law. 66 out of almost 400. You then only had 12 of them who went against the bill in its entirety. I think if you transplanted that across the pond and compared that to congressional Republicans, you'd have a lot more of them. They got rid of their speaker, for crying out loud, who himself was very, what's his face, Kevin McCarthy. I just don't think you have that level of, the the level of rebellion, the level of commitment to those, actual commitment, when it comes down to actual votes, and actual just tearing up the system don't think we are nowhere near the Tory party is nowhere near that so beyond my own feelings and not wanting to be associated with that kind of madness I think objectively we're just not there yet because as I said you had 12 out of almost 400 Tory MPs who voted against this bill you had 66 which yeah fair enough is is quite a lot of Tory MPs when it comes to their majority yeah but you had 66 out of nearly 400 who voted those amendments to international law I think if you had a An analogous bill in Congress Logan and Z and Mike Can probably think of an analogous bill Maybe to back me up Hopefully please back me up I think that proportion would be a lot higher When it came to the GOP In terms of their more crazy side Voting for something so mental Like disapplying international law When we're dealing with something As as, as fundamental as as migration I just don't think a proportion of Insanity is
5: that high yet And hopefully never yeah, I'll, I'll agree with Corey. I'll back you up on this. This, If this is as bad as it gets for the Tories, this is nothing compared to what we have in the House, right? That's where the GOP is by far its most dysfunctional. And basic things that 90% of the House agree on, they just can't get done. And part of that is because they've adopted this infuriating system where they need to be able to pass something with enough Republican votes to get through the House for people to be on board, even if you have tons of Democrats everything except just passing basic government, right? So there are so many things where you have hundreds of co-sponsors, 90% of Americans agree, 70% of the GOP agree, but it just won't happen because a few Looney Tunes on the, far right, or, and sometimes they're not Looney, they're just far-right ideologues to genuinely believe it, right? And they have a conservative view that's just outside the realm of their party, they get to dominate it, right? So I think you have a very different system of, of incentives. The Tories have much more control over their members than the speaker does, in the GOP just, in part, due to the rules, and part due to the politics, and part due to the norms. So, yeah, you guys probably have a problem, but you guys have a mild case where we we've been down out and sick with it for a few decades. It feels.
0: I like the the texture that Mike has given us. First off, Mike says "nutters gonna nut," which <laughs> I thought like a very <laughs> eloquent <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, phrase. Uh, and then, uh, Mike, why don't we end with you? Uh, with with your second uh, contribution via text, why don't you voice it for us, sir?
3: No, I've, here's the thing: if you had asked me to start drawing similarities between UK and US politics ten years ago, I, I would have I would have struggled. And I think, like most things that were the American culture, the American way of doing things, we it pervades at a slow but steady pace. And unfortunately, um, this has been. The Republicanization of the Conservative Party has been happening now. It has. It was not an overnight thing. We didn't just get here. This has been many years in the making. And much like the current GOP is just a complete car crash, the Tories—it's the car crash that that it's the car that shoots off the cliff and it keeps tumbling and tumbling. I would just like to go one week without the Tory saying anything embarrassing right? That's, that's my hope right now. Nothing that makes you cringe or, or say, oh my God, why did they say that? So I, d- I don't know. I don't see it getting any better anytime soon until there's a, a real cultural rejection. And I think this is on both sides of the ponds, a real cultural rede- rejection of lived, know nothing, anti-intellectualism.
0: I'm inclined to agree with you, but I think there are more incentives on the American side for people to be in a a very small minority and and still shout extremely loudly because of um, the megaphone of of US media that as long as people can scream and get their their minutes on Fox and One America, they will get lots of campaign donations and they don't actually really need to do anything but just be an avatar for an America, a small section of America, which is angry. And on that note, uh, good people we need to start wrapping this up logan looking trim and smart and quaffered over there in, in dc what have you been up to in the last week other than running the entrails going through the entrails you should say of the results in iowa but apart from that sir what have you been up to and where can people catch up with you on social media
5: I just had an interview at Politico, so that will be on their site soon. They are asked wanted to talk about how the trials could affect the general election of Biden versus Trump. That was a fun, big break. And also been just adding tons of new features on the site. Race to the WH, if you're looking to get some coverage on what's going on in the general and primary elections, it's a great place to get it. We're tracking all the polls and predicting all the elections.
0: Politico contacted me because... They heard your voice on that very special short episode that I did, Free the Iowa results, and I, and they asked me for your details, so you really should be thanking me. I
5: give you 100% of the credit. <laughs> that would be misplaced, sir.
0: <laughs> uh, well done. And Mike Donahue, same question to you, sir. What have you been up to in the last seven days?
3: Again, watching the COVID inquiry, which is hired back up, watching The Horizon inquiry continue the baton death march and just trying to keep my sanity about me that's, yeah, that's about it Th- that didn't sound too healthy sir so let me hope they no.
0: eat your sanity a-
3: a- a- about you here's what I'm going to do for you Brits I'm I'm going to go make myself a brass monkey because it is a cocktail and then I'm going to play brass monkey by the Beastie Boys as loud as possibly. Uh, as loud as possible. So, yeah. So you guys, just again, a little bit of uh, cross-Atlantic translation errors. It's a drink. Props. I, I, I take it
0: you have been hard at the old Googling there to come up with that. But props to you. Your fingers are very quick at typing, sir. Well done. Well done. And last but most definitely not least, Corey Bernard. Same question to you. And so last week, I guess, following the soap
2: opera that is British politics, that aside, sort of umming and of whether I want to read John Reed, who was the former Home Secretary, I think, Labour Home Secretary, I found his PhD thesis, which was, I was it, the political effects of transatlantic of the transatlantic slave trade on the palm oil economy in 19th century Dahomey. I think that's the whole title of it trying to decide whether I really want to read all 600 pages of that, that's been that's taken up an inordinate, inordinate amount of time this week every time I open my laptop it's there and I'm like do I really want to read this? And I think I'm going to maybe one day I'll give you a brief summary of that. That's, that's been pretty much it to be honest. That's been because I've been procrastinating. I procrastinate by finding thes- theses i been distracting myself from real work and that was one of the theses I found this week to potentially distract myself with. Wow. BCs, what?
0: BCs, BCs, yeah, BCs. You know what? You know what? I forgot to do, good people. I forgot to allow our guests the opportunity to tell us their social media handles and the web handles. So very quickly, Logan Phillips, social media and web, go.
5: Race to the WH.com and Logan r two wh is where you can find me on Twitter. Boom or X or whatever it is, Twitter.
3: On this podcast, it's always Twitter. Mike Donahue, same question to you, sir. I don't think I can speak. Mine is I'm on threads. I'm boycotting Twitter. Michael Don. And Corey Bernhardt. So I am at
2: 168Honymath on Twitter and the other one, Instagram. Mm. Those are my new accounts because so I have joined, I've rejoined the world of social media. Yes. Well done.
0: Well done. And there you go, folks. And that's been another Mid-Atlantic. This week, you've had not one, not two, but three. And this is the third. You had a small but perfectly formed set of thoughts by myself and then Logan Phillips prior to the Iowa caucus results. Then you had a conversation with myself and Piotr Curzon where we looked at the geopolitical hotspots of 2024. Uh, Look out for the Horn of Africa. Uh, It is the uh, moral of that story. And now you've had the panel, the team, the crew, in full effect. You had Logan Phillips, Zico and Sanchez. uh, You had Corey Bernard and Mike Donahue With me, Royful Brown, giving you uh, the week in US and UK politics. At least looking at some of the big issues, which were the Iowa caucus results. What does it mean for the Republican race? And we ended up with Rissi Suna in more hot water but he has got over the line his Rwanda bill. Where it goes from here, heaven only knows. Left to center politics is right thinking politics. Take care. Look after yourselves.
5: Bye-bye. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.